Okay, getting really sidetracked, but it gives us an opportunity to drink more. I'm going to read the first paragraph of... I'm just double fisting. I haven't finished my coffee. I can't, are you really? Yeah. Pumpkin, drinking coffee and whiskey? spice and bourbon. That just sounds disgusting. There's no cream in it. Doesn't matter. for thanks. We're your hosts, Michael. I'm Spencer. My name's Will. On this episode, Will interviews composer Simon Frisch, who has a lot of interesting things coming up this month in New York. Then me, Michael, and Spencer discuss an article that has been making their rounds in classical music circles. Absolute uh, gift from the National Review. The National Review of all publications decided to take a crack at music criticism it's a train wreck, and we are going to take a close look at it. We discussed the review not so much in terms of the opinion, but in the way that the commentary is presented. This article is so ridiculous that we get a little bit over the top uh, and couldn't really hold ourselves back. So get ready for that. There's a lot of music to hear along the way, so don't forget to check out our Spotify playlist and to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Grinder, etc. You're welcome in advance. Here's the show. I recently sat down with composer Simon Frisch to talk about some of his upcoming music and some of the things he's done in the past. Simon doesn't just work as a composer, he also does a lot of work as a music arranger, as an orchestrator, music historian, and festival organizer. For the last five years, he's been running a music festival in northern France. Simon's ancestral background originates in Brittany. He still maintains a close connection to that place in his compositions and in his work as an advocate for new music. Simon's own music is fascinating in that it can sound completely fresh while being closely linked to practices of the past. His interest in historic methods of notation, instrumentation, poetry, and even sound design come together to create something that sounds completely new. went to um, the winery yesterday, and I told the guy I had a challenge for him for some some Breton wine. Oh, no. Really? Is that a thing? Uh, apparently. Oh, God. And the instant look of, uh, this is the first time I've been stumped by a customer, <laughs> dawned on this poor guy's face. So, but he, oh, pro, t- pro tip is uh, we can do... Uh, hard cider next time. You have to really look for it in the city. I wish I, wish I'd known. You gotta. Um, that was a good pop. That was beautiful. Oh. So the guy recommended this, just based on regions and like characteristics of things as you go further north or south. Okay. Basically, he's like, I have no idea. <laughs> this is northern and pretty good. All right. I mean, but like, please don't quiz me about wines on the air because I will not. I'm gonna. I just I'm gonna to, embarrass myself. I just wanted to throw in a little. It's very of, yeah. It's very thoughtful of you. Yeah, you know. Just I figure the, we should. <laughs> right. Are you done peeing? Can you can you pour my glass now? <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. Yeah, this is nice. When you're being recorded, you suddenly become so aware of sound mm-hmm. and how nice the ching was and how lovely the pouring was and the I bottle know. pop and all those things. 
This is really good. This is delicious. Yeah. Serol Domaine. I can't pronounce it. I have horrible French. Cote Rouennaise. Eclat de granit. Yeah. That wasn't bad. I'm never going to be able to do that again. So, yeah, what's up? <laughs> what, is it, what is it, Tuesday? <laughs> okay, so you're in the thick of dealing with a heavy workload. No one lied to me. They do slather it on. Work hard, party hard? Uh, yeah, it's just a lot of hours. And when you, when you work all weekend, you sort of feel like you've earned it on a Monday. And then, of course, you deal with the consequences. <laughs> so for those who don't know, you're in the Juilliard DMA program. Yeah, I just started my doctorate there. That was just my one little bit of NPR info for the audience. <laughs> this is going to be a conversation. If you're just to. tuning in now. Um, what is of... going on? We started with the DMA. What else? What's going on with you right now? Right now, um, <clears throat> I, well, you know we have an orchestra competition. That's my total occupation. <laughs> uh, are you usually a big orchestrator or do you... Um, not really. Like I think I wrote like two fragments as an undergraduate, but I really have not written an orchestra piece since. Oh, cool. So this is it. like a big project. Yeah. It's a workflow adjustment because you are not, you can't write directly into score, or at least I right. don't think that's like. Well, some people do. Is, some people do. Yeah. Um, and I, it features heavily, like there's a lot of orchestrational intent in mm. the sound as soon as it's written, but you can't fit everything on a page the way you can with a chamber piece or even right. a choral piece. So you'd use what's called a, a short score. Um, I, like, I, I kept, or piano or something. Like Shortish, medium height. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that um, short. So I think that's just an adjustment. It's just like just looking at my pages differently yeah. of notes um, and how it, to imagine them. It's like you're writing a piece twice. Would you say you're primarily a chamber music composer? I want to say yes, but I haven't really written a chamber piece since 2015. Right, I wrote I guess a bunch by, of chamber orchestra stuff then. I've done solo I guess by works. chamber music, yeah. I mean smaller yeah, ensemble smaller, yeah, and for solo sure, things. For sure. Maybe solo pieces, and I had uh, one choral piece in the past couple of years. What do you think is kind of the role of, of chamber music nowadays? Not oh, just okay. necessarily limited to classical music, but in terms of like what people think it is, well, what you, what you kind of, your goal is. With it. I'm not a musicologist, but I would say broadly speaking, I get the sense that right now amongst our colleagues, like our artists and our performers and our composers are starting to uh, really navigate the distance between chamber music salon origins and the concert hall stage that it ended up on because mm. the salon is not, particularly shareable or accessible the concert hall has its own issues of uh very established decorum and like buying tickets and it's a whole to do and um, now both of those things kind of alienating have, yeah have kind of like for they're, those of us they're a little museum-y yeah yeah they're a little museum-y and so i think a lot of individuals and organizations are starting to think in more just more intimate terms i've always found in organizing concerts in things that i've written for that the absence of a concert stage is like the best. Oh, cool. It's the best thing. There's just something inherently alienating about like several feet of height between. <laughs> <laughs> this is really interesting. We were just last night, we did a recording of the second half for probably this episode. And uh, we found a re review of the New York Phil opening in the National Review, just tearing it to pieces. Oh, I read this. It's very funny. With Trifonov and. Yeah, uh, it's real bad. And when the piece was about what she was saying it was about she put it in kind of like overly inflated terms but i think it was democratizing 
proximity. Experience. Proximity. Okay. Proximity. So I think that meant there were players mixed in with the audience and yeah. stuff like that. Have you ever put on concerts and stuff in alternative venues? Uh, of my own work? I guess sort of inadvertently. Not but, necessarily of your own work. You're a yeah. concert slash festival organizer yourself. Yeah, so. well, right. So when, when we did this concert series in Brittany, it was not unconsidered, but it was a little bit of something we fell into to, to find all these other venues that were in concert halls because we were, we're on the coastline. It's a very sort of small towny vibes and nobody would give us the light of day um, to like give us a concert hall or a date or whatever. And so I was there with, uh, you know, the, the colleagues who helped me start this. And we went to a, there's a hotel on the, by the beach that has a piano and, it's, and we went in and we asked the receptionist, oh, you know, would you like to have a concert here? We're from Juilliard, we're from Curtis, yada, yada. And she was like, Ooh, we have a cocktail pianist. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, there, there's just, maybe it's a communication gap. Maybe there was, mm, you know, we do need the, someone for turndown service. <laughs> yeah, right? So the first two venues we got were the, the downstairs of a modern art gallery and mm. uh, a tiny chapel in the countryside. The gallery, we just brought a bunch of fold-out chairs. We could fit maybe like 40 people. Properties, chapels, galleries. It's, you know, it's it was a good region for that sort of stuff. What's your favorite space that you've gotten to, to be in over there? Um, there is a tidal fortified chateau island called the... Eden. What is tidal for? So tidal. Oh, tidal. Yeah, tidal. Oh, wow. In that it's cut off so like from the land. Kind of yes, very wow. similar. Wow. Um, very similar. Not far, like uh, 25 minutes drive. And it, it, so it's this now habitable, but like formerly like a mini, like sort of fortress thing ah. on this tiny island that is cut off from the land for all but like six hours, six hours a day. So it's just a sandy like stretch. Wow. There isn't even a road. Oh, so you have um, to walk. Yes, yeah, so you have to walk. You need to want to hear this music. This is a, this is a town, or is this a uh, um, like a this is a private state. This is thing? a private residence that belongs to the commune of Saint Colombe, which is right there. So this island is owned by a guy named Serge. Serge's father bought it from a French songwriter named Leo Ferré, who uh, was a 20th century anarchist iconoclastic poet and songwriter those vibes um so i guess this island has had musical it has musical lineage already and his uh centenary the centenary of his death no the centenary of his birth yeah was um in 2016 in august they have a salon that like looks out over the ocean wow this beautiful piano oh my god and they did a three-day festival and we played one of the performances so that that was my favorite venue I mean, but that's a, that's sort of unfair to the other ones the other ones are like fantastic but yeah as lovely as as all of this is it does raise a lot of issues of just logistics on the organizer's part because it's great having being able to invite your audience to four different places all of them are unique they might not know about them they might have different you know qualities locations and they usually don't have access and, to these and they, and they may not usually have yeah. access to them but that is extremely difficult to organize um, that's got to be really challenging organizing all of that also from, what, 3,000 miles away? Yeah. Well, yeah, so this past summer I really toned it down because it the only way to do it was to really commit my entire summer to just a few concerts. Mm. Which and is, how many years have you been doing this now? Uh, this past summer was our fifth summer. Oh, cool. Uh, some people say that, like... So I not without... It being uh, you having a, at least a reduced role and having other people with more responsibility yeah. in the future. Yeah. Which. Um, now, you, so you're not a dual citizen. No. My grandfather, I think it was normal at the, at the time in like the 30s or something. He renounced his uh, mm. French citizenship Before to become a U.S. citizen. 
before your father was born or your or it was my mom oh was he's my, your, oh yeah it's, it's on my mom's side and she was raised in california i i don't know why i thought your parents were from there because you think i'm fancier than i am i do think you're very fancy <laughs> as i and i obviously think the french are very fancy as i sip my well they make good wine northern so french wine i can't really argue with that mm. um so good so i wrote an article for food 52 which is like the home oh, cook. Yeah. yeah. So they have a, a series called My Family Recipe, which is sort of generally, I think, amateurs sort of write in with a recipe that came down from their family and tell a story associated with that. And so okay. my story was, so my recipe was a French uh, Breton galette, which is like a buckwheat thin crap. It's delicious. I will make it for you because um, I had to learn for the article. I'm, re- I'm really <laughs> just getting people on here to get them to make me food. To make, to get like... <laughs> Ivan make made me sofrito and... <laughs> Now I'm getting a crepe from you. Just like smack of like a f- rustic French. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. You were at but, the, but the article was really interesting. I mean, I really yeah. had to delve into uh, our family history there, but sort of getting to know the region again through what my grandfather left behind, his recipes, because I didn't really know him, um, but also through these concerts that just brought us to the community geographically but really brought the community to us in like a really Mm. uh social and engaged and very vibrant way and someone found my email read that article i found my email and sent me an email describing her italian grandmothers who died when she was very young and she missed their food and she and her father are applying for italian citizenship now and she was like and it's you know i'm really glad to hear this never too late to sort of like find those ties and we just kind of it was really sweet that's so cool (laughs) it was really lovely that is interesting not to go back a topic but please go back i think especially because i know uh matthias pincher spoke spoke last night yeah and you went to see it yeah he's someone who's a composer who not just likes to cook but a pretty um, formidable chef uh, apparently considers himself not just an enthusiast but you know tries to hone his skills and whatnot i think he and pierre boulez used to cook together i know that i think john curliano and Bob Beezer used to cook together. and his, really? Yeah, apparently, because they used to live very close to one another. That's uh, adorable. I know. I, I just love the image of that. It's just so interesting that this is such a common thread with composers, and I always wonder why it is. I think it ha- must have to do with the decisions are made for you already. <laughs> you spend yeah. your whole day making little yeah. decisions that change everything. And you can just be like, I'm sticking to this. Okay, it's I'm going to add just like twitchy hands too, right? I'm, I, I never composed past maybe 7 p.m. The more hours spent on coursework, the more I just want to be at home to cook. Cooking becomes like a real escape. It's funny because I, I think my brother and I are kind of the opposite, opposites on this. He is a great appreciator of food, I guess, but he literally bought the Soylent meal alternative thing to try for a while. Wait, what? It's it, like the movie? No, it, it's one of those sort of techie, quintessentially techie things where someone invented like oh. the powder shake that you can substitute meals with and it's, so it's for like coders who don't want to Yes. Okay. Yes. And then so the name is a joke. Um I think I think it's called Soylent. You might have to edit that. That would be hilarious. Edit this out if I'm I wrong. mean that it's <laughs> grim. I, I remember movies back when I had time for them. <laughs> When was the last time you saw a movie? Uh, it was probably uh, Searching, that John John Cho film where his daughter goes missing. It wasn't very good. It was like oh. a thriller. It all takes place on a screen. Is that like Missing? Or no, what's Taken? Taken. I like never taken? saw Taken. So. Oh, I did see Taken. Yeah, that yeah. was... Um, I see that in my arranging project sometimes. We need this recomposed. I have a very special set of skills. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
do you get to you do a lot of arranging projects? Not a lot, but they've they've come my way. Is it usually for film stuff or for people who are kind of songwriters? Or? It's it's usually really random recording projects. So I did one with a soprano who wanted sort of art songs and top hits of the sort of beautiful vocal music genre recomposed because according to the producer, nothing could be less than three minutes. So like a one and a half minute Dvorak song for piano and voice mm-hmm. that had one melody had to become like a three minute extended riff with voice yeah. as well. So it kept the song aspect, but oh, lot, I but, see. but it was like very reformatted on the inside. And um, I thought they were adding lyrics to a short no, chamber music piece. No, 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 no Like Night in Tunisia no. with Ella Fitzgerald. <laughs> they <laughs> added the lyrics. <laughs> I was running out to get dinner with a friend from her apartment and her mom, Renee Fleming, was at the piano, like just pouring over what, the, meow? the the Berg string court. The Jesus H name drop. <laughs> no, this is so I'm in high. No, I was no, I was an undergraduate at Juilliard, and That's we're so running cool. out, and I'm starving, and and Renee's just at the piano with the score, and she turns to me, and she's like, hey, "Do you know alto clef?" <laughs> She was picking out the vocal line from the movement that has the secret voice part. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I was looking to like where, where she was doubled in what instrument. And she was like, excuse me. That's incredible. Um, Good to hear she's like doing her homework and all that stuff. Not that I would expect anything less of her. She's incredible. She's super diligent. She's a great worker. And that was that was one of the last big arranging things I did was in 2015, 16 was with her as well. Um, oh, so you got to work with her? Yeah hardworking and has great ideas and is kind of wacky and a lot of lovely, like, awesome. you know, sort of eclectic taste. I mean, this was a jazz arranging project oh. to take jazz works by a jazz singer songwriter and actually render them into a sort of art song format that could be taken into recital. Yeah. She's been kind of good at getting back to a lot of that stuff. She just did yeah. a carousel. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Uh, what I took away from that experience besides musically just was that fame is really like a machine. And when you think about it, it's sort of a cottage industry. You have someone literally in this case in their apartment has a dedicated publicist and assistant and, and, you know, an agent and people whose full-time jobs are to sustain and promote wow. and cultivate that brand. And that, and so that's where you get that sort of projected image, which is the most neutral way to describe it. And so with that, what was interesting was then being brought basically like brought right into the center of that whole operation just to work for the individual who is surprise, surprise, an artist with interesting tastes and a lot of talent. You bypass the whole outside image part yeah. that you usually have to navigate. Yeah, that's exactly. really cool. I saw in your bio it said like it said something about there was a project that involved her, and I was yeah, like, so oh, what is this? That's so cool. Yeah. I didn't realize it was that cool. Um, it's pretty neat. And I really have no background in jazz, so it really was a a learning curve, a real adaptation. Mm. Do you like listen to jazz on your own? No, I don't really listen to music in my own time. Mm. Um, <laughs> any music no music any, no if if i have if i have a, a, a occasion to sit down and really engage with something but i think that's just the the trade off for working in sound is that sound like as composer is that sound is kind of your office space like you oh, go wow. there to work on some on some level even if it is enjoyment it it can't be for me disassociated from uh, a very active process. Yeah, sometimes if um, if I'm listening to something new and I find that I really like it, I'll have to actively try not to learn more about it because uh-huh. yeah. it'll kind of like ruin the magic a little oh, bit. Okay. Where yeah. I'll go, and even when I was younger, when I was a guitarist, I was like, if I would learn a, a piece or a song, I would be kind of like thinking about the fretboard mm-hmm. instead of like just really digging on Jimmy Page. <laughs> <laughs> 
it does change your relationship to it, like the act of listening. So it's it's not even like specific to jazz, but I just don't really listen to music. At parties, very often if there's music playing, um, first of all, I don't know any of the songs, so I'm just I'm just chilling. I'm like talking to people and meeting people and whatever. And so often that I'm in a very engaged conversation, and someone just like whirls around and says, "This is my favorite song." <laughs> it, it it always astonishes me because I didn't notice the song change. I didn't know. I didn't recognize what the song was prior. I didn't see it change. I didn't. I don't know what the new song is. There's just like an aware, like a double awareness that they are capable of of having this conversation, but also listening. That I just like. For me, it's one or the other. So you're all or nothing. That's just fully oblivious. And you're very all when you're all. Like you, <laughs> you dig into topics like crazy. Uh, yes, that's for sure. Like you, I, you told me that you went to an history of notation seminar. Oh uh, yeah, they called thing? it a boot camp. Boot camp. That's I. I knew I got the word camp somewhere, but I wasn't sure if it was. Uh, yeah. Shout out to enough. shout out to my historical notation boot camp. Hashtag noom school. Oh. Hashtag lig day. <laughs> Hashtag what? Oh, leg day. <laughs> Don't skip leg day. As Don't in, skip leg day. As like in. ligature? Ligatures. <laughs> History lesson. Can you, tell, my, can my, you explain to me, like I'm a four-year-old, what a ligature my is? My suggested hashtags were not universally adopted. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm uh, still not sure I know what a ligature is. Even if you recognize ligature as just a sort of a pre-contemporary notated... It, it, it's a shape. It's, it's, a, it's a thick line drawn to show the contour of a line. Over several gives you notes. multiple notes all yeah, at once. It gives yeah, you, it, between like two and four, you oh. know. So, but you voluntarily decided. I, I that, sought this out. Yeah. I sought this out because it's not something that's offered. I mean, and I'm sure you've noticed this going back into scores. Like it gets to the 17th century and you're like, uh, okay, okay. And then it gets to the 16th century and you're like, I don't know. I don't know what that is. I just says. don't know what's happening. The, the skill set to, to, to explore everything from like 9th to 15th, 16th centuries is not generally available. So I sought it out. I'm guessing that has been useful so far because I know your music's pretty historically informed. Yeah, so I'll qualify that just by saying that I don't try to try to I don't seek like explicit stylistic reference or quotation. Right, I wouldn't but, call you a historical performance right, yeah. uh, offshoot. But my inspirations tend to be quite old. I mean, right. <laughs> I remember we made a recording of uh, oh my Mar- canopies, marginalia yeah. too. Yeah, yeah. and. This might have been something that you got from a more current composer, but there was a reference to something older that had to do with overtones, and you play the key, the piano keys oh, at different yeah. times. Oh, yeah, so Kortag, uh, the Hungarian composer. Oh, so not um, that old. So, well, still alive, which surprised yeah, me. Not that old at all. Up, I, yeah. I, I think of him as a certain generation, and then I look at him, and it's like, oh, he's still around. Still kicking. Still kicking. Bless, he's amazing. He, he has all these arrangements, usually for forehand, sometimes two pianos, of older music, and that includes quite a bit of Bach, arranged by him, where he imitates the the very tinny sound of an organ by doubling everything in the primo pianist at an octave and a fifth, two dynamic levels below. And what that does is that it, it actually colors the fundamental pitch, but you don't really perceive it as so. One pianist is playing the same part up an interval and quieter. And in, just... in this case, in, the, in this particular region, it's, it tends to be just the primo, mm-hmm. whose melody is in the left hand, and then the doubling, oh, the sort of I phantom doubling yeah. is in the right hand. And it's just a very simple, very effective, beautiful sound. I just remember thinking, it sounds so cool. It like, really does. I couldn't, well, you told me about it, and I was like, I bet it's 
kind of a nifty thing. Like, like, yeah. You hear it? Yeah, I guess I hear it. It's pretty good. And then you played it, and I just thought, I can't believe a piano did that. Oh. Maybe we'll insert a little clip of that sound. Do you use that in your in marginalia? Yeah, marginalia right. Too. Okay, yeah. yeah so maybe we'll actively. maybe we'll insert that yeah. effect. Yeah, totally. And it's not as it's not there to imitate the organ the way that Cortag uh, right. does it, but as a coloring. And it's not that I like explicitly or avoid working inside the piano or altering sound in other ways, but to just have the keys, like by all accounts, a very conventional sort of take on the piano, create a sound that is truly unique was, I I thought that was really special. And you, if I you're in the audience, you can't tell what they're doing. Yeah. That's yeah. so cool. I will say this. Um, and this is just a tidbit. I was listening to Sa- a Sasson piano concerto. I don't know. It's like a lot of his larger works. Um, you're bad Frenchman. Yeah, I know. It's terrible. <laughs> um, and he has one called uh, like the Egyptian, but he uses that exact effect. It, it, it really struck me. It's just to say, like, there's no such thing as, like, truly inventing a sound. Like, there's always... <laughs> yeah, it, without fail, whenever you have a, a cool idea or an original idea, three weeks later, yeah. you're going to be talking to somebody and they go, hey, have you seen this thing where they take a ping pong ball and they, like, throw <laughs> it across the room at a symbol? Well, have you seen that Beethoven sound? <laughs> the history of that sound as I know it is basically Sanson Quirtag and this piece that I wrote. Because it's not just the fact that something is old, but to me it's also the anachronisms of the perspective of a contemporary composer on something old, not in a recreative sense, but there's always that time lag, a dilation, an aesthetic like gap. Hmm. And it's it's not the fact that it's old so much as the, the, the space you create between you and something that on some, many levels you can't ever truly understand. Uh, so that sounds smart. It's all down. It did sound here. really it's good. Like I'm, I'm processing. <laughs> <laughs> We're ending the interview. <laughs> no, but it's really not that I'm going to use like historical notation from like, you know, this piece is a reference to 11th. That's not the point. But the point is that with that training and when you understand how this musicology, uh, this music technology came together of notation, then you have a foil to examine the ways in which you use notation and the, yeah. the sort of the inherited sort of assumed notions that we have and, and time as well. You know, when you notate time, it's a reflection of thinking of it in a certain way and structuring it in a certain way. Um, this goes more to the notation of rhythm and meter. Um, but that as well, that's a, um, to learn where that notation came from is an opportunity to actually sort of challenge the ear on how it puts that together. This is historically informed in a kind of different way, but yeah, I so want to talk about this choral piece that you're working on. Yeah. It's coming oh, yeah. up in October. Yeah. So uh, a few years ago, I read uh, Autobiography of Red by Anne Carson, who is a Greek translator, a classic uh, translator, scholar, and also a poet in her own right. And she, in various ways, and leaning into one aspect or the other of her training, she often melds these genres or, or areas that she works in. Um, and Autobiography of Red is a riff on the surviving papyrus fragments of a post-Homeric Greek poet named Stesi Chorus, whose work only survives in fragments. And one collection of these fragments are clearly emerged from an epic poem that he had written on Heracles's 10th labor, 
which is which we don't have which we don't have the whole thing we just have the scraps we know what the labor is the labor is mm-hmm. to I and mean, that's obviously is this the horses in the... this is the cattle his, his tenth oh, labor right, right. is to go to the red island uh and steal the red cattle that are guarded by the monster garion and garion uh confronts heracles and is killed in that struggle and carson says about this by way of preface is that what's interesting is that stessy chorus in the fragments we have clearly has inverted this narrative and tells the entire story from Garion's perspective. And what emerges is actually a very empathetic portrait of Mm -hmm. a monster coming to terms with his kind of otherness and this weird destiny that he can confront or not of Heracles coming over, just talking with his mom, asking like, should I, should I confront him? Am I immortal? Is that, is that, do we know? <laughs> you know, just like really uh, portraying the interior life of another. And this like, is in the, the ancient Greek. This is, this is, in this the is not the, themselves. this is not Anne's sort of invention on a subject. Mm-hmm. This is, this is really out of Ceci Corsa's That's own amazing. work. Talk um, about, uh, you've never done something. You've never <laughs> first. inverted the monster narrative. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and so it's step it's really, aside, John Gardner. <laughs> It happened 2,000 years ago. And so she actually does a, I'm going to put a quote-unquote translation of the quote-unquote surviving fragments in the beginning. And then her riff on it is telling the story of Garion as updated to be a sort of modern adolescent who falls in love with a boy named Heracles who absolutely shatters his heart. And as a portrayal of heartbreak, as a portrayal of queerness, it is a very, it's just a stunning text. But the, it was the fragments that especially appeal to me musically because they are so evocative. She describes it as scraps of red meat that you find in a box. Everything's red. Yeah. Everything (laughs) is red and it's all, it's all sort of scattered. And so Mm -hmm. there are all these kind of gaps and, and implications and um, just by virtue of the format, just because the document itself may have sort of degenerated relatively few can be definitively derived, said to be derived from existing fragments. Mm-hmm. So it's clear that she filled in a lot of the gaps. And that's kind of her thing and from what is, I understand. Yeah. And, and and I think that's, it, it, she does translate the ones that, you know, are truly Ceci Chorus, but this is very characteristic of her work practice then is then to uh, sort of under, understand some essential quality of those fragments and then just fill it in. And the, the collectively, those 16 fragments are just, they're beautiful. Um, and they're really devastating. So those, I thought, would be great for choral settings, specifically. And I actually decided this really soon. I just read it, and I was like, this would be a great choir piece. And it took, <laughs> maybe it took me two, and I was so fixated on it. It took me a long time to actually build up the courage to write to her, her agent, and ask for permission. But I did about a year ago and got the rights. Even just uh, figuring out something that would be a good text to set in such a quick span of time, that in and of itself is a blessing because that's one of the hardest things to do is to find a piece of yeah. text to set. Like, so if you find it the other way around before you even know you're going to necessarily write a piece of music. that's, that's this, is, I, this is a big tangent, but I think about this a lot in our field. Like, why are composers so bad at finding text? Or why do we not have the resources? Or like, uh, Well, I just... Suck at poetry. <laughs> Reading it, <laughs> taking it in, <laughs> it's above me. I, I just, I don't think we're, I think we talk a lot about voice setting sometimes in our kind of, but no one really gives us a sensibility. It's not embedded in our training to be able to seek out text or appreciate mm. uh, poetry. That's why everyone does like Emily Dickinson. 
constantly. I know. I'm <laughs> avoiding it. Yeah. Not because I don't like her, but be, just no, because I can't, brilliant. can't do it brilliant. again. But, you know, it's just, it's. I, I think in our field, it's such a basic choice. But not because it's not worth setting, but for that to be your default. Mm-hmm. Because you have not, like, pursued other contemporary texts, mm-hmm. or you don't take the time to read through things. I have a kind of, by surprise, a opportunity to write a choral piece. And I instantly realized I have no idea where to begin finding a text and call your friend simon i know i should have called you should have been my first stop it gave me kind of a swift kick in the ass to go actually get into reading poetry which i think part of the problem is it's something that at least in america is not in the public consciousness that much yeah and it's not really encouraged in education there might be a little bit of it in lit courses in middle school or something but you're going to just learn about emily dickinson yeah and after like, that, it's Naruto seen as this maybe. thing that, you know, either pretentious or, in, you know, certain people I'm sure think it's something that's kind of an effect thing to do, go read poetry or something like that. And it's like, there's just this kind of attitude towards it. I'm like, it's, it bleeds into everybody's experience, even if it's something that you're open to and excited about. I poetry think, I, and I think it's time to think about poetry more as composers, but also as a society. I, think I agree. Poetry is becoming much more important because there are a lot of narratives and discourses and things that are being Especially, actually increasingly expressed in poetry and in very text alone yeah we're and more alone. and more be, uh, communicating via text yeah. so the ensemble who's going to perform the first set of these this is the first like real choral piece of any substance i think that i've written since high school which is a real homecoming because in my childhood and in high school choir was so important to me the conductor who commissioned this my mom sang in his amateur choir in New York when I was growing up, like in middle school. So I've been completely surrounded by choir in a pretty broad repertoire. You were in choirs when you were young? Yeah. Or I'd go to rehearsal or, you know, Mm -hmm. the after party for a concert would be at our apartment or I'd definitely go to the concerts and that sort of thing. The first piece I ever wrote as a composer truly was a choral piece for my high school choir. And a certain Renee Fleming came to the performance, happened to be there. Are you kidding me? And came up to me afterwards and was like, that was a great piece. Like, I really think you can do something in composition. Wow. So. (laughs) That's a nice little, uh, what is it, push off the dock. Yeah. And then the (laughs) next year I applied to conservatories, which I hadn't thought about ever before. And now we're here. Um, (laughs) But so choir is hugely important to me. So when this conductor... The conductor has a, his name is Harold Rosenbaum. He's a choir called the New York Virtuoso Singers. And they do annual commissions. Uh, he'll do several of them. I think it's sponsored by the ASCAP Foundation. And it just fell really well because because I had this text I wanted to set. It it wasn't enough of a commission, as it were, even enough time frame to set the full 16 fragments. But I was able to do the first four, which are very nice oh. because they're sort of self-contained. And, and there's 10 in total? 16 fragments. 16 fragments. Do you have a plan to, to do more of them? Or is I would love to. No, realistically, mm-hmm. no. But artistically, yes. It's lovely to have the opportunity to work with that because that's a great sort of starting canvas where you're going to have people who you'll see what works and what doesn't work, but it's not has nothing to do with the level of the musicians because they'll, they'll do it and they'll do a great job. This particular commission was just enough to like kind of start the piece. And I'm glad I didn't write all 16. First yeah, thing. I can only imagine. How long is... Well, this is like going to be like 12 minutes. So, okay. These four fragments. So, so I really envisioned like an almost hour long, just choral piece that ideally would have no stage, wow. right? That would just be the audience to some extent commingled with the, or at least very proximate to the singers, which is really unrealistic, but I don't think so. I mean, one of these days. it just takes the right set of circumstances, obviously. Yeah, right. 
I have these two other things I want to ask you about, and I have no idea how to segue to them. So I'm just going to do it. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> so just because you've had all this experience organizing stuff and performing and bringing music to people in Europe, mm-hmm. primarily by American musicians, composers and and players, although I'm sure the players kind of come from everywhere. Yeah, but, um, but, but they're, they're all funneled they're, through, like, through American, American institutions. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what's the perception of new music? Because uh, one thing we forgot to say about is it's Festival Danube. Is that how you say it? It was. What is the reception like for American new music? Okay, that's a um, really good question. It, it, because there's, I mean, I know there's very different things happening right now between America and kind of everywhere else. Yeah, you mean aesthetically or in terms of what composers are writing? Exactly, yeah. I have to profess a lot of ignorance on what a lot of the trends might be in another country, like in France or in Germany or another, I don't you know, anywhere, uh, China as well. But you can only sort of be aware of your immediate surroundings sometimes. And I think that's the case a lot for us as composers here. Um, so there's, so just in the very format, there's kind of a willful ignorance in the programming going into where it's like, I don't know what's happening in France. So we're just not going to talk about that. Right. We're going to do concerts in France, but it's going to be, as you said, like a lot of young American composers. Cause that's okay. well, the reason I was asking the question yeah. is from my understanding, there's not much American music programmed overseas. In fact, almost none except for Aaron Copeland and Steve Reich a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, this is a, a commendable effort for that <laughs> okay. reason. Um, but what was the reception kind of like to this? So, so, right. So, this is really the, you bring this stuff over, and then, like, you have just these communities just along the countryside, and they're not necessarily musical. Certainly, there are concerts there, but they tend, they don't tend, they are categorically like very conservative programming. There's so many four seasons that I just talk about it in multiples of four. Like, so I think one important element that is not evident in New York because we're so saturated with a lot of art just by virtue of being something a little different and finding a community where this actually, it means something truly mm-hmm. that in of itself is like a really important step. Um, and I think that's kind of incumbent on us to find communities, to find other places that are not our immediate circle. When we programmed this music, I think another important thing was it wasn't all new music. It was generally half and half. It was half new music and half of the other half was 20th century music the other half of that half, so quarters, were more standard repertory. So if you think about it on a programming level, that basically breaks down to like you have four to five pieces. One is from capital C canon, one is something from the 20th century that might be a little unfamiliar, and two to three of the pieces are new um, by a young composer. I think having more than one new piece on a program, just having two to begin with, is a world of difference from having one piece. One of the things that really Mm. bugs me about programming here in the States so often is that, especially with major institutions like orchestras, is that they'll have a Mozart symphony, a new piece, and a concerto by like Beethoven Mm -hmm. or whatever. And the thing that gets me about that programming is that the, the piece in the middle, new piece, is set up to fail because the audience doesn't have immediate reference for it. Comparison. They can't say, well, the two new pieces I heard, this aspect spoke to me of this one. They're forced to like make those considerations. Any audience member, mm-hmm. trained or untrained in music. The um, new music becomes the opening act comic. Yeah. You know, the, the person who goes up to get booed so that yeah. everyone else sounds great. Yeah. Once the audience is primed and yeah. ready to go. And you are always going to do that if you only have one new piece in a program. But you need two or more. And you need to basically articulate to the audiences in presenting to them, 
it's okay to, to compare them, to think about them. That is what you need. You don't need them to like it. And the reality is that many of them did. But even when they didn't, they had something to say about it. Last question. Yeah. And I'll let you go on your merry way. This is just a question I like to ask each guest. Okay. Uh, so the question is very simple. Uh, what is your favorite non-classical piece of music? can be anything. Uh, just not chamber music, symphony, ballet, or opera. I think I'll have to cut out my, my lengthy pause. That's I'm okay. Think, no, I'm there's a lot of this. pauses we could. So I've never known the lyrics of songs in a way that it seems like everyone I ever encountered ever knew everything. Once at karaoke, the only song I could find that like, I really knew I knew the lyrics to was uh, If I Loved You from Carousel. <laughs> <laughs> like I went to the whole wow, and I was like, this is the one. <laughs> so there in Koreatown at 2 a.m., <laughs> My friend was serenaded. Um, but I will say, it's a like wedding season, right? I think we're we're getting to that sort of era where all our friends are getting married. And the one that gets me going is I Want to Dance with Somebody. Oh. I think that is a fabulous song. Mm. And it is one that is so fun to sing along to. It just, it, I want to dance with somebody. Who is that again? Whitney Houston. We'll cut this part out for sure. <laughs> Somebody and it's, I feel like if I thought about this more, I could have you know, like a thing. And that's, <laughs> that's very like me, one. like on the spot. But it's such a good song. Yeah, so and much it, positive energy. And, and yeah, it's just so honest um, and fun and lovely. <laughs> that's a great answer. I love that one. The last time I was interviewed for the radio, I had to cook while I was doing it, and in French, and talk about like Nazis in the 20th century in Brittany. So this has been. A lovely experience. <laughs> <laughs> I like to think that we make this a little easier on you than that. That, yeah. was, that was a lot. <laughs> Next time I might make you a cook, though. Okay. As long as it's in English. I okay, think. so we got to wrap it up. Took it over the Unfortunately. Head. But thank you so much for coming on to talk with us. Thank and you, both. This was so fun. I can't wait to hear this piece. Uh, we'll be there for sure. Um, it's the 26th of October? 27th. Excuse me. 27th Saturday, of yeah. October. And we'll definitely let people know how to get tickets and all that oh, stuff so we can get people to go. It's going to be awesome. I'm so excited. Well. Thanks again so much to Simon for coming in to talk to us. If you want to learn more about his music, head over to Simon Frisch. That's Simon, F-R-I-S-C-H dot com. His newest piece for choir, The Garion Matter, the piece we talked about based on Autobiography of Red is being premiered by the New York Virtuoso Singers at Advent Lutheran Church on October 27th. The concert's at 8 p.m. and tickets are $25. $20 if you're a student. We're going to be there and we hope to see you all there too. If you want to keep up to date on upcoming concerts from any of the composers we talked to on this podcast, be sure to check out loudboxnyc.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, any of those. For now, here's an excerpt of the piece that Simon and I talked about during the interview that used interesting piano techniques. It's called Marginalia Two.
Joe Biden's preparing to run for president. Oh my god. Uh, I'm gonna do do not Fuck. disturb. Hate Joe Biden? No, I don't. I don't. I mean, I don't <laughs> hate Joe Biden. I just don't see him beating anyone. Nothing. I was trying to be organic about it, and then I got interrupted. <laughs> You're so sad. Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing. Fucking forget it, guys. We're skipping episode Wait, four. Turned off or on air? So yeah. Can I be on what, the Wi-Fi? Yeah, you can be on Wi-Fi. Spencer found an interesting article this week, and and you might have too. Okay. Um, let me let me go. Let I don't know if you read the first. National Review, but we don't. Apparently, Spencer does because he just likes to hate okay. people. Spencer, what, um, what 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 is this? What are we? I think the best way to do this is if you just if should we just read through it out loud and tear it apart? Yeah, like yeah. it just no, starts no, with him reading it out loud. I think we we're just gonna, start riffing and see how long it takes to get through this hunk of shit. So give um, us a little setup. National Review contributor Daniel Gellernter, Gellern Gellernter, Gallantine. No, because you know what I'm I'm. I'm trying to think of the best way to introduce the National Review. Yeah, what, who might, for, for our audience who doesn't know, what is the National Review? I don't know what it is. Um, I want to know, too. The National Review was started by William F. Buckley. Who's William F. Buckley? Because my mind went straight to Jeff Buckley, and I was like, no. William, William F. Buckley like was a, brother type. Um, a public intellectual who was sort of the father of modern-day conservatism. Gotcha. He's like most of the other Republicans who probably are appalled by Trump's lack of decorum, but ultimately... Agree with everything he says. Yeah. So sort of a, a hotbed of shrieking conservatives who are most concerned with, you know, like performative wokeness and, you know, made-up liberal causes. They're the people who use the term SJW gotcha. at all. What's this, Jake? Um, Social justice warrior. Ooh. Yeah. What the fuck? I was like someone running around in like hockey gear trying to yeah. smack people. It's it's kind of well, like, like saying libtard. Yeah. Uh, well, like, re- remember a couple not of years ago. Not that we condone ago, that term. Give me one second because there is um, an article that this fuck wrote. Let's stop using his name and just call him Daniel this fuck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel this fuck has written like 10 or so articles for the National Review. They're mostly about music. Okay, so we kind of know what this guy is and what sort of reading material you can find on this site. The reason that we're talking about this is because the National Review has decided to take a crack at serious music criticism by sending uh, Daniel this fuck, Gertenficken? What's his last Gerdner? Can you Ge- spell it out? Gellern turn. Gellern turn. G E L. Daniel E R N T E R. Daniel Gellern turn. To the New York Phil season opening. It's a it's a beautiful thing that uh, the National Review would uh, would give us so so much ammunition to go on. Yeah. Lo- God bless them. Lo- lowly lowly uh, musicians. <laughs> they saw that we needed some help and they decided yeah. to give it to us. <laughs> It's so much easier in politics because you can talk about scandals and opinions and music. It's the title is "A New Conductor Brings New Problems for the NY Philharmonic." Oh, wow. Under Jaap von Sweden's baton, the orchestra is no longer sloppy; it's merely unmusical. For years, the maniacal self-absorption of music director Alan Gilbert allowed for New York Philharmonic. <laughs> <laughs> to, de- to deteriorate into a sloppy shambles and become the worst of the world's best orchestras. 
First of all, not a bad spot to occupy, even if that was right. <laughs> the worst of the best. I am not going to make it through this. Yeah, 10 of the top 10 list is still hey, pretty good. Hey, 10 out of 10. All, wait, what did he call Alan Gilbert? Maniacal? Maniacal self-absorption of Alan Gilbert. Wait, so wh- I'm just so curious what his what did Alan Gilbert do to this guy? I first I of all assume he's getting this from uh, Gilbert's endeavors to um, bring new new music okay into it. I, that'll be that'll be more clear as as the uh, article yeah, goes on. The pot shot right out at the out of the gate. At the conductor who's not there anymore, I find very interesting. I've never read anything like that about Alan Gilbert. That's, no. That's not in... The one thing that is, like, occasionally players think he's, like, a little too nitpicky about stuff. I mean, that's not really saying he's maniacal. <laughs> okay, so maniacally self-absorbed isn't anywhere in his uh, public persona, as far as we know. This season, there's a new music director, Dutch conductor and violinist, Jaap van Sveden. Van Sveden gave his opening subscription series this weekend, and the transformation was obvious. Under his baton, the orchestra is no longer sloppy. Now it is merely unmusical. I've heard this before. Did what? you? He, did we hear this before? What do you mean? I, I, it's the first sentence of the fucking article. when you read it. Oh, no. no. It was not, not the first sentence. That was like the... Oh, it's the subtitle? Subtitle. Oh, yeah. Fine. Whatever. He reads the subtitle in the article. <clears throat> that was my mistake. High school thesis statement. <laughs> The concert opened with the debut of Filament, a new work by contemporary composer Ashley Fuhrer that sounded like a parody of the late 60s experimental music. The orchestra was supplemented by three soloists in casual hipster attire on spotlit pedestals, a trumpet, a bass, and, out in the aisle, a bassoon. These were in turn supplemented by 15, in quotes, moving voices, singers who prowled around the, the audience with black plastic megaphones that resembled witches' hats. <laughs> Wait. This is what I understand. Do, why would do you megaphones really need a descriptor? That's what I'm saying. Why would you need to say, oh, no, it wasn't square. It was more like a witch hat. It was shaped like, kind of no like shit. a megaphone, you know? The piece lasted 14 minutes, roughly 10 minutes of demonic possession, followed by four minutes <laughs> of a traffic accident in the Holland Tunnel. Sounds fun to me. <laughs> the, composer's, the composer's stated goals included to democratize... <laughs> That piece does sound really stupid. (laughs) (laughs) The composer's stated goals included to democratize proximity and to activate a theater for the social. Okay, that does that does sound. um, I disagree with this guy's tone in the rest of the article, but that I don't really understand what democratizing. What does that uh, mean? I was going to ask. Do they just mean like the cheap seats feel like you're right there? I feel compelled to note that once the singers had finished hissing into their megaphones like a suite of deflating tires and Van Faden had turned slowly <laughs> and balletically to stare at the audience as the lights were gradually dimmed to black, we were not left feeling that our proximities had been particularly democratized. So the piece was a failure. The audience, however, loved it. I still don't know what democratize means. Means like democracy, like making it available. Oh, like you're making making available to everybody. Yeah, so they're Mm -hmm. making the proximity available to. Yeah, Ah. because I think it meant that it was out in the space with the audience. Like the performance was Mm -hmm. in the space Mm -hmm. with you, Mm -hmm. as opposed to being separated by the stage. Okay. Yeah. Although. 
I'm sorry, that's too many four syllable words in a in a program note for me. But I just want you to feel like you're in it. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I said I wasn't gonna use southern accents on the podcast anymore. <laughs> Führer's piece was followed by Beethoven's Emperor Piano Concerto, for which Van Faden was joined by world-famous Russian pianist Daniel Trifonov. The Emperor is Beethoven's fifth and final piano concerto, an epitome of his middle period. An epitome? I'm, let me take that again. No, no, no. That's I, what it says. An, an epitome. It's an epitome. Not the epitome, though. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's not the... How can you have... Multiple epitomies. Oh, I mean, it's Epitomi. Beethoven. It's Beethoven. Epitomi? Epitomies? Epitomia? Epitopodes. An epitome of his middle period, uniquely and typically Beethovenian in its unusual approach. Okay. Well, this is, this, is where he, this is where he conveys to his audience that he's really smart. The first, the first movement opens not with a theme, but with a cadenza flourish, that bathes the piano in the home key and prepares the audience to be launched into the concerto like a warm-up for the opening pitch. The beautiful, <laughs> Wow. The beautiful and romantic oh, second movement is glued directly into got... the rondo finale, a technique with which Beethoven had experimented in his Appassionata Sonata. This guy did a great job reading Wikipedia. <laughs> like that what, was, he just was, Googled Attacker. What, what was the point of any <laughs> Beethoven of pieces with Attacker. I just got the joke about the opening pitch. It's baseball. Yeah. I didn't get that when I read it. Oh, baseball. Like with the ball. Yeah. Yeah. Like with the where you play the piano and it throws <clears throat> the pitch. <laughs> what? What? What I mean, what is the point of any of that description? Just to fill it out. In case you weren't yeah. nice. I mean, it's a review. <laughs> it's a review that you wouldn't understand if you didn't already understand the piece. But this is where it gets really prickly. Van Sveden and Trifonov teamed up to bring out the least in the piece. <laughs> Somebody call the burn ward. Their performance was boring, methodical, dramatically uninteresting. Trifonov, wearing a narrow gray necktie that dangled down his shirt front like Ugh. the highway to nowhere. This oh. is what I have a problem with. Why is he making fun of... I hate thin gray neckties. <laughs> but, I but, hate and the, them. And the comment earlier about hipsters, but this is where he's... People who write for the National Review are all 60 years old, even if they're not. Be fun of people's <laughs> clothes. I don't get it. Even the 40-year-olds are 60. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> that annoys they're me so much. They're just terrified by young people. I mean, Jesus, if, if, a, if a skinny tie is what throws this guy for a loop, I'd hate to see him go to the village. He he, I don't he, like he hasn't person. he hasn't been below 14th Street since uh, the Bush administration. Yeah, he gets the bends, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my cells. Feels like I'm leeching. <laughs> okay, get, get him back to it. Dangle down his shirt front like the highway to nowhere. Put plenty of energy. <laughs> Sorry, take it past <laughs> highway to nowhere. <laughs> he put plenty of energy into the keyboard, but tried to play Beethoven as though it were Chopin or Tchaikovsky. Oh, he couldn't. I get- hate it when people do that. I can't stand it. <laughs> he couldn't get his foot off the damper pedal and blurred sharp passages. Mm. Van Faden conducted as though his sole object was to make sure that all the notes happened. Van Faden is also known for his his classic repertoire, but apparently... <laughs> it didn't <laughs> cut it for this guy. Not here. We yeah. set a high bar here at he, the National Review. <laughs> he played it like he was just trying to get through that last lesson of the day. Mike, are you okay? Hmm? Are you okay? 
I am just in shock by this. The, just drink the sheer you gotta take it stupidity it's funny. of we're, this entire article. We're only halfway through it. God, I can't. We got a take lot it. to go, Shug. It's gonna, it's gonna be rough. There's nothing wrong with a gray necktie. Yeah, I know. Well, it's a narrow gray necktie. Even with, better, which represents youth, Ugh. which is disgusting. Or fuck off. I mean, skinny neckties from like the '60s. You know, Trifonov's got one of these mop top haircuts. I don't like it. In his author bio, it says that he writes for the National Review sometimes, the Weekly Standard, and also he's the founder of an app called Detached. Oh, he's the CEO. D i t t a c h. Which is it to show that he's fully detached from reality, <laughs> or that he can't spell? Totally, I don't even get what the what, it's it's an app that allows you to search through all of your emails and find only the emails with attachments, so you can delete attachments and uh, free up space on your yeah. It's your called Gmail. It only like... search attachments in Gmail. I don't know. <laughs> already what's exists. the what's the market for this? <clears throat> Why would you need this app? Fucking moron! <laughs> I need what, a drink. What, Hang on. Let's let's make enemies. That'd be so fucking cool. Usually, I'm really sensitive. Not with this guy. This guy's a fucker. Oh, he sucks. Damn. He he hates new music. I kind of got that impression. Oh, here's my question though. Should we knock that piece without even listening to it? Or kind of like it might not be fair I'm to. In critique it without i mean yeah, i, I think the, the program notes sound really ridiculous let me honest when i read that i was like this sounds like someone just pumped it through that program notes generator but the piece <laughs> itself might you know another gem that he wrote liberals want your car keys i saw that <laughs> i do want what is the gist car keys. Of... I, want, I want people's car i don't have a car and i want one but what's the gist Excuse of that me, article sir, can i have your keys like i don't understand no, what he's cares? trying to say he's just manufacturing oh. some kind of fear machine for the Idiots who are on the right wing. It's uh, about how liberals want. Um, they want to keep you from driving to your gun locker. <laughs> yeah, like, what? We couldn't get rid of the guns. We okay, should, back to we the. Should, we should get back to the article. Back to the okay. article. One senses that Beethoven was on the program only because it is a statutory requirement. Yeesh, phrasing. <laughs> Both conductor and soloist sounded as though they wished to be doing something else. Their performance was followed by a lengthy standing ovation, which left a small scattering of audience members sitting in the seats, shaking their heads. Who? Mm. It's probably him. Mm. He would be a small fraction of the audience. Well, it's, it's, it's all the... A small fraction of the audience. I mean, the film. That's how he's going. It's not just me. It's not... <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> other people agreed that the Beethoven sucked. <laughs> there they were... Yeah, there were a bunch of people in my row who all had long, stringy gray hair. They were hooked up to IVs. They looked like the Crypt Keeper. They didn't like it either. There were two oxygen tanks and one helium tank for some reason. <laughs> it, was probably, it was probably just a bunch of older people that couldn't stand up. I remember one person said <laughs> they to weren't me, shaking their head. They were <laughs> they're having a tremor. Oh, <laughs> oh no. <laughs> No, we love and respect elderly. <laughs> yes, we do. I'm sorry. I just want to cut this guy's argument down. <laughs> but he addresses this criticism. Oh, good. Okay. The highlight of the evening was the second half of the program, an exceptional rendering of Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. The acoustic Wait, space... I thought the whole concert was unmusical. I don't... I don't... No. Wait, which... 
I'm at fault here. You're looking here, for obviously. consistency in a piece of a piece. No, that's it must be like me, the reader, fire. because there's no fault with Daniel this fuck. The whole thing, the whole thing was unmusical. Even the good parts. But okay, I'm on board. <laughs> Hold on, I got I'm, no. I'm not I, sure get where, I, I get it. I forget where this goes. I get it. The acoustic space was better served by the larger ensemble, mm. twice the size of Beethoven's orchestra. This is the biggest red flag that this guy doesn't know what the hell he's talking about, because no matter what the size ensemble in David Geffen, it sounds like ass. <laughs> that is the worst sounding space on the eastern seaboard. It's very unfortunate. Well, I think they just need to paint their railings, too. <laughs> I, you know, <laughs> honestly, the, 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 it, the fact yeah. that it looks like Trump High School is having an assembly because it's all like that weird, it's, that, no, it's it like that brushed gold thing. I don't know what, brushed I, I gold mean, and taupe do not like go a, together. A util, utilitarian hall got gussied up for a night on the town. <laughs> but yeah, with the chipping paint. It was the acceptable garishness of the 60s. Yeah, I guess so. You know. What I can tell you about, though, is why David Geffen sounds like ass. Why? It's a fun story. Uh, this is a fun little break from tearing down our Republican guy. Um, oh, we don't know he's a Republican. Whatever. When they were building then Avery Fisher, I guess, the plan was for the hall to actually be much smaller. And it was actually one of the first halls where they were bringing in acousticians and acoustic design firms to come in and help with the construction. And they were really excited to, you know, build this hall this way and be the first. So it had that big kind of, you know how the hall had, if, if you don't know, David Geffen Hall, where the New York Phil plays, has kind of a fully surrounding atrium. And then the hall itself is kind of like a little shoebox within the building itself. And the, the outside is all glass and cement and stuff. When they were building it, Someone got the blueprints and went to marketing at the orchestra and said, like, oh, we've got the blueprints. Check it out. Uh, you'll, you'll love this. You'll be able to show this to donors and be like, look how great this looks. And they took a look at it, and it had the seating count on it. And they said, there's no way we're going to stay afloat if we only have that many seats in the hall. And they brought it to the business office and that kind of thing. And so the solution was to just take the back wall and move it back by half again to add more seats so it completely ruined the acoustic structure of the room and now we're blessed with 50 years of crap sounding acoustics with the best orchestra in the world so even though you have the most talented highest paid uh best ensemble around you can't hear the strings it's like meatloaf you you go through you go to great lengths to make the food or the or the singer Usually, I mean, actually, excuse me. The food or the actor? <laughs> the actor. Oh, okay. You go to great lengths to make a meatloaf, and then, and then he becomes hours, a singer, and, <laughs> and then you and then you dump ketchup on it. It's That's weird. silly. That's silly to go to great lengths to to make something right and perfect, and then just just ruin it by. Oh, I love ketchup, ketchup and meatloaf. No, I'm okay. Let's get it's back a, to the article. It ma- it Do you even sense, remember where we were? Getting back to it. The Rite of Spring. Oh, hold on. No, no, I, back up like a sentence or Okay, two. okay. The acoustic space was better served by the larger ensemble, twice the size of Beethoven's orchestra. <laughs> He's one-upping Beethoven. In parentheses, like, it's twice the size of Beethoven. <laughs> the single criteria of judgment. You know what else is twice the size of Beethoven's? <laughs> Stravinsky's dick. And Vance. We don't Fieden. know that. 
brought out every ounce, every inch of the piece's <laughs> huge stored Throbbing. energy. <laughs> I'm the gay one. Why is it always you guys talking about the dicks? Why do you always get to be the gay one? <laughs> the Rite of Spring debuted in Paris in 1913 and prompted a, in quotes, hostile demonstration from the audience. Most reviews skewered the work as barbaric. Now, wherever it appears on a concert program, it serves as a tacit warning to the critics. Be careful what you say about new music, because you're probably just behind the times. Now, hang on a minute. (laughs) Didn't this this guy just say that he didn't like Fiora's music? Well, he addresses that. In this case, we should presumably be cautious about criticizing the new music of Ashley Fuhrer. Mm. Oh, Oh, okay. He's covered his bases. Oh, okay. But there is an important difference. Stravinsky's work... I doubt it. (laughs) Stravinsky's work was a simulation of barbarism. A highly successful phony. Okay. Okay. For something you like, that's kind of a... Do you think this guy went like Red Catcher in the Rye and thought that Holden Caulfield was like, these guys are a bunch of phonies. They're kind of a, a peppy bunch of upstarts. (laughs) <laughs> With a piece oh, this of- is all about that piece. This is this is the piece. We should link to it. That sounds really cool. Yeah, I don't know. Proposal. No more tan. We should try to get through this. The rest of it now. In like one go, and then we should talk about why this guy is actually wrong and, and discuss it a bit. Uh, where was I? In this case, we should presumably be cautious about criticizing the new music of Ashley Fuhr. But there is an important difference. Stravinsky's work was a simulation of barbarism, a highly successful phony. Stravinsky didn't like Beethoven, but he knew Beethoven as one knows his own family history. A composer who doesn't know Beethoven, or a conductor who can't play Beethoven, is like a mathematician who can't add, or a writer who can't spell. (laughs) Beethoven is one of the great cornerstones of musical civilization and of Western culture more broadly. Fuhrer's work is the reverse of Stravinsky's. Genuine barbarism. Phony sophistication. Fuhrer doesn't have to pretend not to know Beethoven. His music would never have interested her enough to study, even for the purpose of rejecting it. Ugh, in that so respect... Rude. He's just, in, he doesn't know what he's talking about. I know, but... Okay, that line in particular sounds like he's going, this woman wouldn't know what Beethoven... Like, I don't like, appreciate his whole, like, Western-centric uh, Beethoven. Uh, I mean, okay, Beethoven's great, but he's just basically implying that if you don't know Beethoven... You don't understand music. And it's like, fuck off. There's been music in so many cultures around the world. It's not. I like that he's saying that this accomplished composer doesn't know who Beethoven is. Well, this is what you get when you have a a music critic who comes from the standpoint of Western imperialism is a worldly good. Like it's it's bringing culture and it's bringing. It's like Mm -hmm. that is. That has been the problematic <laughs> thinking for centuries. <laughs> How much Beethoven did, did Iraqis have before we freed them? 
Yeah, I, I don't know, but I'll tell you, they've got a lot more nickel back in Iraq yeah. right now. Oh, God. Well, that's what no I was one. listening to, and I fired mortars on them. Well, no one needs any more nickel back. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Finish. We're in the home stretch here. Finish it up. In that respect, Fuhrer perfectly suits the audience who sat listening to its debut. As if the average New York Phil audience is full of young people who want to hear new, weird music. <laughs> A new generation of concert goers that has never listened to Beethoven. <laughs> like, where is he getting this? Like, where is he basing this off of? That's what's driving me crazy. He's just making blanket statements that don't he's, have he's any. He's doing. He's he's gathering research and pulling it directly out of his ass. The Jesus. opening line about Alan Gilbert being mono- <laughs> maniacally self-absorbed. It's, it's an image that people kind of want to hear about some classical music person. Yeah, I guess it's I guess it's interesting. But everyone who writes for the National Review is just they they are just like feverishly excited to hop into their bunkers. I mean, if you spent that much time building your bunker, yeah, you, you'd no, want they're, to too. They're, they're the Imagine if I told 50s. you to spend like. $35,000 building a blanket fort and then said like you gotta wait until I come to take your guns and then I don't take your guns anyway last two sentences yeah okay a new generation of concert goers that has never listened to Beethoven but that knows what screaming sounds like but that knows what screaming sounds like the last paragraph the last paragraph is great because it's so representative of all of his writing. The conclusion paragraph. Mm. See if you can parse what the meaning this is pregnant with. You could never fool an ordinary New Yorker like that. If a cab driver or a plumber felt like listening to a traffic accident, he'd know where to find it. The cultural elite, however, are willing to pay for it and actually want to pay for it. It is their badge of betterness. Vince Faden may not have a feel for classical music, but he is giving his audience the orchestra they deserve. Wow. A pithy, out-of-nowhere statement. That was a tour de force at the end. <laughs> By the way, that means, like, real good job, Daniel, just in case you didn't know what that means. Okay, so what do we make of that whole dumpster fire? There's so many, so many things to... I guess we have to put the blatant grammatical inadequacy aside. No, I think you could definitely address that. What's funny about this is this guy would probably advocate that everyone here should have to speak English. uh, And he obviously can't. He can't write it. Well, I think he he does have an article about... um, We can't bring in more material. (laughs) No, he he has an article where he specifically addresses American English. Oh, God. Anyway, where should we start, musically speaking? we got to stick to music, or, or we'll be here for hours. I like the, the conjecture that Stravinsky didn't like Beethoven. I didn't know about that before. I never heard that. Me neither. And I'm halfway that. through a doctorate. So I don't like that he's not even taking um, a systemic approach to critiquing new music. He's just basically doing the very stereotypical dismissal of it because the sounds might not be traditional. He's dismissing the Beethoven too, though. All he's doing is taking pot shots at easy targets. You know, the, the up and comer who writes something that 
is different from what you've heard. And the conductor, who is somebody who's obviously somebody that everyone thinks has an inflated sense of ego, so they're ready to take him down. So even if he's a nice guy who's taking the orchestra in a new direction, he's taking, he took pot shots at both conductors, not even the current one, the last one who had nothing to do with this. He not, probably not pot shots. He's, he's, he's not being peevish. He's not picking on little things that you can pick on if, if you're being pedantic. Like a, like a necktie? Sure. I mean, that's a pot shot. But mm-hmm. calling Alan Gilbert maniacally self-absorbed, where does that even come from? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe he wanted him to turn around during a concert and point him out and say, thanks, Dan, for all the literary work that you give us. I wonder and if because he's... he didn't do that, he was being maniacally self-absorbed. He was too worried about the music and not giving accolades to Dan Garbage. That's his new name. And I'm <laughs> Dan Garbage. I Dan like Garbage. That. Dan I don't, Garbage. I don't know how to pronounce the last name, and I'm not going to learn it. I just want to call him Dan Garbage. You know, he, he, he writes like every baby boomer who's, who's skeptical and fearful of millennials and their apps and their screen time. But he's not a boomer. He's like 30. What? Oh, I saw a picture. No, he's younger. Yeah. He looks like a supple boy scout. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> So, uh, oh boy, <laughs> Jesus <laughs> Christ! I not can tell to, by your to... laugh that you think I sexualize the word supple. <laughs> <laughs> not to nitpick, but I mean, like this guy seems to be kind of a, a victim of his own party's uh, beliefs in defunding education, for one thing. <laughs> Maybe if we had a little money going towards public schools, this guy wouldn't sound like a fucking Philistine. I'm sure he didn't go to public school. For all we know, we would actually get along very well with this guy and have some good discourse. (laughs) We just disagree, and he can't write for shit. I mean, I would probably say the same things about that piece, but... (laughs) (laughs) We're not talking about the piece. We're talking about this guy's bad music criticism pals. (laughs) In another article, this this guy calls Debussy a sliver of Beethoven. Someone who <laughs> who sounded like he had four hands but no fingers. Who has hard opinions like that 150 years later? But it, what? what is, this has been but, but a also, s- celebrated, awesome part of music for the last century. And this guy's the one going like, no, it's not that great, actually. And also, his criticisms are totally incoherent. I know. don't even make sense. I know. New music sucks. This sounds like bullshit. <clears throat> Stravinsky sucked and sounded like bullshit, and it's the best thing ever now. But I'm right about this one piece. There are a group of people who think of, like, Samuel Barber and Copeland's contemporary. And yeah, I understand yeah. how that happened, but I would be worried about someone who felt comfortable committing that to a nationally recognized journal. I mean, I don't know if we got anywhere on this, but it, it's it's certainly a, a fun window into how some people think. I, I hope this person can become a character on uh, on this. I hope I we get maybe to call we... him a fan of the show. Yeah. <laughs> Uncle Dan wrote in about this concert, and we're oh going to talk about God, it. God, I want him to write, or I want him to listen to this, and I want him to write a review. I would, uh, I would be so happy. I mean, yeah. he's kind of barking up the wrong tree if he wants I mean, to find a, a Republican, that, but... a right-wing bastion. The arts isn't exactly where you go. 
No, no, but see, that's the thing. I guess um, if you fund the arts, it's maybe. A, it's, a, it's a staple of status. Nothing I think from. we should make this our, uh, our election episode. The first episode in November. Or yeah, the one maybe. right before Halloween. You know what should scare you most this Halloween? The Democrats not winning the House, because you're going to be fucked. I'm scared. Yeah, we're going to have the fourth right coming in. <sighs> I'm so scared. Uh, maybe that was too scary. That was too scary. No, it's not. Okay, how do we how do we bring together how do we process what we just read? I don't conservatives know. are insane victims and they all write like they are in their 60s regardless of their age and their conservatism and fear about young people and young things knows no genre of thought. It can it be knows no limitation. <laughs> it can be it can be anything. Your fear can take you anywhere. <laughs> it's a big world. <laughs> and you should fear it. <laughs> Michael, what's your takeaway? There's nothing wrong with a gray skinny necktie. <laughs> nothing at all. <laughs> I, I that was kind of a main sticking point. It's he's got this whole article about how everything is fundamentally wrong, and this Russian pianist decided to wear a gray skinny necktie. All right, and uh, I don't know. I don't really know what I think about this article, except that it's the most profoundly stupid thing I've ever read in music criticism. It sounds like a tenth grader wrote it five minutes before going to class. I don't get. I think it, it suffers. I don't from get this. how this guy has a job writing for anyone. He's because he's the. CEO. I shouldn't tear apart his writing. That's like second level argument. Well, uh, that's, but that's what he's. That's what he's doing. It's. It's the. I can take the couple faults that I see, and I can stretch that into an argument because it's easier to to talk about something I hate and why I hate it and all the things I hate about it than it is to say. Well, the, you know, there was a lot of merit here. The the greatest clue into the breadth of his ignorance is he dedicated about three sentences to the content of each piece. All we know from his writing about Ashley Fira's work is that there were three soloists. They were dressed like hipsters. Uh, what does that mean, though? They're that dressed. They're they're he dressed. Hates young people. They're Jeez. dressed like Gennaro group that older people don't like that much for some reason. And <laughs> then uh, we know that there were people with megaphones and that the lights went out at one point. What we know about Beethoven is that it's a great work that everyone except this guy and like six other people loved. And then all we know about Stravinsky is that even though this performance was apparently fantastic, everything on the program sucked. That's a paradox for the ages, but let's let him have it. I, I mean, we have to chalk it up to the, the fact that the guy's a moron. But this is, I guess, in summation, this is a nice how to make, how to let everyone know that you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Yeah. Especially I, his nice little Wikipedia entries about like, the best part about the Beethoven is that he attaches the movements together, a technique known as attacka which is used in several of his other works, including this one other work that everyone's heard of a million times before. 
No, it's a good distillation of spiteful, pointless music criticism, which is most music criticism. Fair enough. I mean, but this is especially <laughs> stupid. Pick your music critic that you don't like. At least they know what the hell they're talking about. At least they're educated and know about the topic. They're entitled to their opinion, whether or not you agree with it or not. This guy is just pulling out of his ass. Being called a loser <laughs> by someone like this would be about as validating as a commission from the New York Phil. I want Which this to escalate. Con- congratulations to Ashley Fira. This guy thinks you're a loser, which means that you are a phenomenal composer and the New York Phil commissioned you on top of it. So you're kicking ass. Keep it Basically up. Enti- it's, enti- it's entirely hateful. In the end, Most of it. it's, it's National Review of Music. Uh, it's cute. Uh, try again. <laughs> well, it's it seems that he, he posts on here, you know, every couple months. So I think... Uh, so he's going to a lot of concerts. He's going to a lot of concerts. I think uh, <laughs> Daniel Gellenturn, we will see you again. Well, I hope so. And that's this episode of A Dodgy Over Things. Um, I hope we learned something. I'm not really sure what, but um, it was certainly fun getting here, I guess. Just to clarify... All the points that we were making in our discussion tonight were in criticism of the criticism and dialogue surrounding music and not the music itself. All the pieces and performances on that concert were of fantastic merit by most accounts. So we simply took some umbrage with uh, this reporter. If you've got some opinions that you want to share with us about it, please feel free to reach out on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, any of those. We would love to get some feedback and to hear what you have to say about this. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review about how handsome we sound. We'll be ending today's episode with one more piece by Simon Frisch. Again, his new piece, The Garion Matter, is being premiered in New York on October 27th. Be sure to check it out. For now, we'll leave you with the final movement of Simon's string quartet, Transiamus.
I mean, he's going to call us losers. Because then we know, can retweet it. Like, I can't wait to be a loser fine. in this guy's book. I Should would we, prefer well, you, to be a... social medias are. You, it's up to you. Oh, man, I want to get this guy so mad at us. See what the flagpole at three, asshole. <laughs> can we make him our enemy? Can we make him our... our what's it? Our He's our Lex Luthor. I hope he's bald. I hope he's bald so bad. <laughs>